Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is David Nasby, and I will be moderating today's forum. The Westminster Town Hall Forum originates from the sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. This morning is the uh, final uh, program in our Westminster Forums to focus on the issue of children and violence cultivating a change. We are very pleased to welcome today Robin Carr Morse. Can the roots of violence be identified? What makes children violent? Can we stop the violence before it begins? Robin Carr Morse, co-author of Ghosts from the Nursery, offers compelling and controversial evidence that the answer to those questions is yes. Robin Carmores is a veteran of the Oregon Child Welfare and Public Education Systems. She is currently a family therapist in Portland, Oregon. Please join me in welcoming Robin Carmores. Thank you, David. Just one year prior, to the school shooting at Littleton's Columbine High School, many of you will remember that my home state, Oregon, was in the news when a boy named Kip Kinkle shot first his parents and then opened fire on a group of his classmates at Thurston High School, about 50 miles from where I live. Interviewers have asked me literally each week since then what I know about Kip Kinkle, and I tell them essentially what's common knowledge that this boy was depressed, that he'd been consumed by rage for a long time, that he was on Prozac, that he had a history of killing small animals, that he wasn't poor, that he's white, and that he had two parents who were both teachers. Now recently, the local paper has reported that, in fact, this little boy was a huge challenge, was a troubled little one, even since the time of his toddlerhood. But in spite of the literally miles of film and media coverage devoted to Paducah, Pearl, Jonesboro, Springfield, and Littleton, we still have many more questions than we do answers. How can two Colorado boys from affluent homes plan and then systematically carry out the bombing and shooting of their classmates? What's going on when an Oregon high school freshman suddenly murders his parents, and then opens fire on a group of his schoolmates. These questions have inspired many discussions in your community and mine about the root causes. Topping the list of causes typically attributed are access to guns, copycat crimes, media, and video violence, or the lack of censorship of the internet. In discussions prior to Springfield and Littleton, we heard a lot about poverty as causal. While each of these factors may play a role, and it's clear that we have to do something to keep guns out of the hands of children in our country, the reality is that even if we take all of these factors together, guns, media violence, the internet, violent video games, and poverty, they don't explain how or why. How can kids plan and then systematically kill their classmates? How, in the course of a half a dozen or even a dozen and a half years, 
can a baby metamorphosize into a vicious killer, and why? It's the answer to this question and what we can do about it that I'd like you to leave with this morning. Let's take a look, first of all, at our current system. As you know, since 1994, the crime rate has dropped across the U.S., and well, it should have. Since 1980, we've more than tripled our prison space in this country. Next to Russia, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. One in three homes currently being built in America is being built behind bars. As of 1995, more than five million Americans were living under the control of the criminal justice system in this country. That was compared with six million students who at that time were enrolled in four-year colleges across our country. If this trend continues, we'll soon have more people living under the control of the criminal justice system than we will have enrolled in four-year colleges. The state of California, by the way, already spends more on criminal justice than on higher education. According to recent data released by the FBI, at our present rate of incarceration, one in 20 of the babies born in your community and mine, one in 20, will spend some part of their adult lives in jail or in prison. And we still can't feel safe on our streets at night or recently even in our schools. Our chief strategies for coping with this problem combine trying desperately to provide programs for out-of-control pre-adolescent and adolescent children with new police models, getting tough on crime, harsher sentencing, trying kids as adults, insisting on longer time actually served, and above all else, building more prisons. Well, neither I nor I'm sure any of you dispute society's need to protect itself there's a short-sightedness in our traditional approach to crime in this country. The impotence of our primary reliance on a crisis mentality becomes apparent as the faces of violent offenders grow younger and as the lines between perpetrators and victims become blurred. Exactly how do we, for example, effectively remediate, let alone get tough, on kids like Ray DeFord. Ray is another Oregon boy. He was 11 when he set fire to his apartment building, killing eight people and sending 15 others critically burned to the hospital. My understanding is that Ray has a permanent cleft in his cranium where his father hit him with a clipboard for crying as a toddler. This was the same father who weaned Ray at the age of 18 months by placing his baby bottle in a pan of rubbing alcohol and setting that on fire in front of the baby. Ray's mother's retarded. This little boy was left to fend for himself since he was tiny. When he was apprehended, reporters went out to interview people around this child, as they often do, and they interviewed some of the children who'd grown up with Ray, who talked about Ray germs. Ray was so neglected that he stunk and had been shunned by the other children. Will Ray become a child? who is remorseful or who even comprehends what he's done? Probably not. Will he become capable of complex thinking that would allow him insight into his own motivations and that of other people? Probably not. Will he develop the ability to formulate constructive alternatives to the destructive behavior we've seen from Ray? Maybe. But generalizing those newly learned behaviors to specific upcoming situations may be very difficult for Ray given his history of emotional and learning disabilities. Where do we go with children like Ray? 
certainly we don't give up on them or on any child or adult for that matter who's been traumatized or neglected. But the cost to society, let alone to the children themselves, are enormous. The therapies these children need are expensive and they're seldom funded for adequate duration, adequate intensity. And the reality is that many, if not most, of the children who finally do get the therapies that they need don't typically receive them in time to turn around their sense of themselves as marked or as troubled. By ignoring or overlooking, by being effectively blind to early signs of emotional and behavioral distress in our infants and our toddlers, We've inadvertently created an assembly line leading straight to our jails and prisons, which are, by the way, a number one industry in most of our states. Here's how this works. If we start by looking at the people who are currently in jail or in prison in our country, and we begin to trace their life cycle backwards, we'll see that most of the people now in jail or prison, not all but most, were arrested also as juveniles, more than 60%. In high school, these same individuals were likely to have been involved in alcohol, drugs, gangs, or alienated groups. Typically, they were angry, rejected, or excluded by mainstream kids. Most often, unlike the two boys in Colorado, these weren't our honor students. These children weren't doing well in school. If they were girls, they were often runaway or pregnant. People knew these children were in trouble in high school. If we look one chapter earlier in these same lives, most of these troubled adolescents were known at grade school as children who had learning, behavioral, or emotional problems. A frightening number of them were delayed or had physical handicaps or developmental disabilities. Many had families with very serious problems, including chronic, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. If we look back a little earlier to the neighborhood, a high percentage of these same children were children known to be left to their own devices, children inadequately supervised, inadequately hooked in to an intimate relationship with a key adult. They were children with parents too absorbed in their own lives to parent in an adequate way. Many of these children were neglected or abused, and typically the neighbors knew. They simply didn't know what to do. Finally, if we look back to the beginning of these same lives, these children were most often the babies born in hospitals across our nation who go home with parents too overwhelmed to show the first signs of cherishing their babies. The most obvious of their mothers had bruises on their faces or backs or were teenagers without support. Somewhat easier to miss were the mothers who were depressed or disassociative or were living submerged in angry or demeaning relationships. A fair percentage of these mothers had little or no prenatal care. Some brought their babies into the world already hooked on the same substance she had, took, she had taken to mask her own despair. We recognize the warning signs. Delivery room nurses can tell us very quickly. Maternal immaturity, parental substance abuse, family violence, to name just a few obvious ones. But we wait. We wait for these parents to fail. We wait for their children to appear in the system. By this time, for a growing percentage of children, it's very late. The educational system in our country, the child welfare system, the juvenile justice system, the prison system, and the adult welfare system are all stretched beyond capacity. And they are neither funded nor designed to fix 
these problems. We're paying dearly for children growing to school age damaged and angry. When we talk about crime, when we talk about bigger jails, when we talk about expanded police forces, more drug enforcement, we're talking about the same kids later. If our goal is to adequately understand, let alone begin to alter the violence we're seeing in America, we have to, with rare exceptions, look before adolescence, before grade school, before preschool, to the cradle of human formation in the first 33 months of life. These months, which include the nine months of gestation and the first 24 months after birth, harbor the seeds of impulsive violence for a growing percentage of children. Our thesis in the book that we wrote, Ghosts from the Nursery, is that the roots of violence often begin in the womb and can be well entrenched by preschool. Now, we're certainly not talking about the bad seed. And we're not saying that later events don't count. Rather, what we're saying is that what happens early to this little organism, both biologically and psychologically, creates either relative receptivity to or relative resistance to the factors that we're all pointing a finger at as causing violence later in a child's life. Factors such as the availability of guns or violent modeling in television or video games are absorbed very differently by a young brain that is rageful and detached from other people than by one who is empathic and hooked in to other people. The person that I think probably says this most succinctly of all is a colleague of ours uh, who is the head of psychiatry at Baylor Medical College in Houston, Texas. His name is Bruce Perry. Perry says, it's not the finger that pulls the trigger, it's the brain. It's not the penis that rapes, it's the brain. Violence begins in the brain, and the brain begins in the womb. Violence, like all behavior, is brain-based. The rooting of violent responses or of the responses that mitigate against violent behavior begin when the brain begins in the womb. Now, this is not a simple equation. The roots of violence never stem from a single source. This is also not nature versus nurture. Nature and nurture combine and accumulate to set this stage. What happens in a nutshell is that biological factors like prematurity or the effects of drugs on that little fetus in the uterus or birth trauma or tiny brain hemorrhages or difficult temperaments can render a baby vulnerable. Then when these biological conditions affecting babies are compounded by social factors affecting their families, like chronic maternal depression, domestic violence, or drug abuse. The results can be the toxic recipe for the abuse or the neglect of that little brain at critical points in early development. Once one understands how the brain works and how it develops, that person will never see infancy or toddlerhood the same way again. There are three concepts critical to this understanding. The first is that, unlike any other organ in the body, the brain is a dynamic, interactive organ which actually builds itself 
in response to stimulation in that child's environment. Unlike, say, a heart or a kidney or a liver, each of which grow on a course that's essentially preset by genetics, the brain is designed to actually require stimulation from the child's environment to complete its development. Genetics set the blueprint for brain development, but the finishing, the way those blueprints are executed, depends upon the child's experience. Sensual input, sound, sight, touch, movement, taste, and so on, all build gray matter in the developing brain. When adequate stimulation doesn't happen, as is the case in chronic neglect, or when these experiences are abnormal, as is the case when a child is exposed to chronic trauma, that little brain reflects these realities not just psychologically, but physically. The brain is the physical reflection of our experiences. This, by the way, begins before birth, when the brain responds to experiences in its first environment in the womb, including the effects of drugs, alcohol, nicotine, and maternal stress. Experience shapes brain tissue, brain chemistry, and brain organization, especially early in development. A second basic understanding is that unlike any other species on this planet, man emerges from the womb with a uniquely unfinished brain, a brain that is uniquely vulnerable to experience in the first two years of life. Other primates come into the world with brains much further along in their development than ours. At birth, our brains, the little human brain, weighs just 25% of its adult brain weight. The macaque monkey, which is the breed most widely studied by the neuroscientists now, comes in with a brain weighing 60% of its adult weight. And even the chimpanzee, which is the closest of all to us genetically, is, a bo is born with a brain weighing 45% of its adult weight. But that little human brain, having come in at birth at 25% of its adult brain weight, by age two reaches 90% of its adult weight. This period of rapid growth and formative organization after birth puts huge and unique importance on the quality and the quantity of nurturing and stimulation that surrounds that little organism in the first 24 months after birth. It is during these first two years that essential capacities like vision must be stimulated by experience, by use, or they can be lost for a lifetime. If, for example, a baby is born with cataracts covering their eyes and those cataracts are not removed by the time the baby is six months old, the child will be permanently blind. The brain cells that were once available for vision at birth, if left unstimulated, will die or will be called to use elsewhere in the brain. An operation at seven or nine or 12 months won't reverse this. Like muscles elsewhere in the body, Building brain tissue is in good measure a use it or lose it proposition. How well we think, how well we learn, both as children and as adults, has a great deal to do with the quality and the quantity of stimulation that we receive at this time of life. A third understanding that we need to have in our minds to comprehend the importance of this time of life 
is that when the brain is just forming, not only can key capacities in that little brain be underbuilt or lost by neglect or lack of stimulation, particularly of the cortical brain, but also certain parts of the brain can be overbuilt or overstimulated by abuse or by exposure to trauma. Let me explain to you how this works. In the simplest terms, the brain develops in layers. It grows from the inside out. Anatomically, the brain begins with a brainstem. The brainstem controls just the most basic, and the most essential functions of the body, like blood pressure, heart rate, body temperature. Then next to develop comes the midbrain, which controls appetite and sleep. Then comes the limbic brain, which is the seat of emotion and impulse. And then finally, the top layer of the brain, the cortical brain, is the slowest part to develop. This is where logic, planning, cognition, the so-called executive functions, our thinking functions, take place in the human brain. Now, remember that human brain development depends upon use. Brain potential will be completed or not by stimulation from that child's environment. As the brain develops, it's designed so that gradually the higher areas of the brain, specifically the, corte the cortex, will gradually begin to modulate and control the lower, more primitive parts of the brain. The younger the child, the more dominant are that child's more primitive brain-based functions. So that as the cortex develops, so does that child's ability to modulate his or her impulses or more primitive behaviors. According to Bruce Perry, to whom I referred earlier at, in Houston, our ability to modulate our impulsive behavior, think about how key that is to the prevention of violence, our ability to modulate our impulsive behavior is directly related to the ratio between the stimulation of the lower, more primitive parts of the brain and the stimulation of the moderating skills in the cortical brain. What this means essentially is that any experience, especially early in life, which reduces that little developing brain's ability to focus on learning, such as chronic emotional neglect or exposure of that fetus to alcohol in the womb, each of which take a huge toll on the cortex, or any experience that, that increases the overproduction of the fight-or-flight brain chemistry in that child's lower brain, such as the child's exposure to child abuse or to chronic domestic violence. Either of these conditions, the overbuilding of the lower brain or the underbuilding of the cortical brain, can help set the stage for violent behavior. When a baby is abused repeatedly or is exposed to regular bouts of violence by the hands that are there to rock the cradle, their lower brain functions, the fight or flight mechanisms we all have to ensure survival, will be highly stimulated. Because the way the brain builds itself is use dependent, this kind of stimulation over time builds a hypervigilant or overactive response system in that baby's lower brain. I want you to think just for a moment about a time that you yourself were really frightened as an adult. Think about what happened to your heartbeat 
What happened to your breathing? What happened to your stomach or to the palms of your hands? In the initial response to fear, an alarm action is triggered in the baby's brain, just as it is in yours. The baby's brain, the lower brain, responds by increasing heart rate, increasing blood pressure, increasing respiration, increasing muscle tone, and there will be a release of stored sugar in that little brain. The baby becomes hyper alert to the threat so that all information not relevant to the threat will be tuned out in the baby's awareness. If the threat materializes, the full range of stress systems will come into play in the baby's brain. Norepinephrine will be released in all regions of the brain that regulate arousal in the brainstem and the midbrain are turned on. Following even one intense incident, the systems involved in stress modulation will be reactivated by reminders or thoughts of the original incident, including dreams. If this kind of trauma occurs often enough, the hypervigilant response may generalize so that even subtle reminders of the initial incident will be enough to trigger these responses in the baby's brain. For example, we'll see children who, if they've been hit chronically, will wince or cower every time an adult raises their hand. In very young children, the fight-or-flight chemistry can become permanently set on high. These babies become always on red alert for signs of threat in the environment. Fight-or-flight systems that are being constantly overstimulated will pull attention from other crucial forms of learning. These children's brains are not fully available to develop, to focus on learning. These babies become the kids who can't sit still in school because they're constantly monitoring the environment for signs of danger, rather than sitting calmly focused on the teacher's lesson. They'll often perceive even relatively benign behaviors in other people as hostile, and they're ready to respond. Or they can become the children who seem not to listen, who don't do what they're asked to do because they simply aren't there. They've tuned out and gone away inside their own little brains. When chemical states of fear persist over time in early development, what begins as a state of hypervigilance, an immediate response, can become a trait, a perpetual quality. These children may look hyperactive. They may be labeled learning disabled. They, in fact, show increased muscle tones, increased temperatures, increased pulse rates, increased startle responses, and profound sleep disturbances. When these babies are boys, they tend to become aggressive, reactive, impulsive. They're often the kids who react out of the blue with little seeming external provocation. When they're girls, they tend to become disassociative, abstracted, seemingly not there. Originally adaptive and protective in a threatening environment, these brain-based defenses can become a huge handicap in a normal environment like school. IQ, school performance, social relationships are all typically affected. We used to hear from teachers 10 years ago that there was an average of one or two of these children in their classrooms. Now we hear that there are an average of four or five or six. Experience actually shapes brain tissue, brain chemistry, brain organization. And 8,500 children every day are reported in our country for child abuse and neglect. One in three of those are under a year old. So where can we go? 
What can we do about this? Meredith and I wrote Ghosts from the Nursery because we believe that a crucial first step is putting the face of the baby on the issue of violence. Currently, when most people think of violence, they think of adolescents, they think of adults. No one thinks of babies. The result is that we never stem this problem. The next step is to begin to vote and advocate for invest investments in prevention as opposed to simply continuing to throw more money after crime. There are two basic investments which, have, which communities can make that have proven effective in specifically preventing aggression and crime as well as in protecting children's ability to succeed in school. One of these, which has long been available in several European countries, is home visitation of all pre-born and newly born babies. The other is high quality, developmentally sound childcare and preschool. Both of these investments have been thoroughly researched using, ran using randomized control studies and longitudinal studies to show a clear impact on preventing aggression and reducing the rate of incarceration. These outcomes can be clearly documented for fiscally conservative voters and fiscally conservative legislators. For any of you who are interested, I would refer you to the RAND report, which indicates that four to eight dollars can be saved within less than two decades for every one dollar spent on these programs. Given what we now know about brain development and given the new data on programs that can actually prevent this cycle, in my opinion, this entire discussion about babies in our country needs to be reframed. Here's what I think should happen. 150 years ago, our country was only beginning to understand that government needed to invest in the free public education of our children ages 6 to 18. Public schools were non-existent. Now we take our schools for granted. But as we face the new millennium, our schools are in serious trouble. Too many children are entering the front doors who are affected by the kinds of brain-based problems that we've talked about here. Based on the new research on the brain and based on what we know about programs, I believe that education of children in this country needs to be redefined as beginning at zero in the womb. Now, such a system would clearly not be institutionally based. We're not talking about little baby schools. The Cadillac model for the prevention of violence, as well as for zero to three education, would begin with home visitation by nurses or teachers or trained paraprofessionals. Home visitation as needed or requested would segue into a menu of subsidized high quality childcare and preschool options until the child enters kindergarten for ongoing strong care of that child, not only cognitively and, and physically, but also emotionally. Another key piece of this, by the way, is education for parenting, which would ideally begin with pre-parenting skills such as anger management and problem-solving skills in grade school, and would continue through junior and senior high school with practicums which would expose teenagers to the reality of working with babies and young children. By the way, I know of no better birth control program than putting young people to work with the reality of little children. For people who are about to become or are already parents, tax deductions or incentives for obtaining education on children's needs and constructive discipline skills are a whole lot cheaper 
been dealing with the fallout. Can you imagine the impact on schools, let alone on child welfare or adult or juvenile justice, if every baby born were the focus of early nurturing, early stimulation, early assessment from the beginning? If we in this room, if we had come together today not just to talk about babies and brain development, but we were members of the board of a given company, and if our collective financial future hung on our ability to produce high-quality, functionally sound, say, widgets, would we knowingly, as a board, allow our company to ignore or pay no attention to the quality of the raw materials going into the making of our widgets? Would we allow a tenth or so of those widgets to be pulled off the front end of the assembly line, to be left out in the rain to rust or to otherwise weather the elements? Or would we allow another tenth to be taken out back and kicked around a bit, maybe beaten into unrecognizable shapes, and then put them back onto the assembly line at midpoint and still expect to maintain public trust for producing a high-quality, functional product? Of course we wouldn't. But this is exactly what's happening with a growing percentage of children in our public education system. The fact is that we really do know what to do. Several nations have preceded us on this path, including France and the Scandinavian countries. But there's a huge gap between what we know and what we do. And of course, the answer that we always receive from people is that the real impediment is dollars. If you believe that, then I have a question for you to pose back to your legislators, and that question is, what does it cost for incarceration per year in a medium to high security cell per inmate per year? The answer to this question varies from state to state. It goes from $20,000 to $100,000 per inmate per year. That's with sentences growing longer and younger. It doesn't count any collateral costs, including the costs that led up to the prison cell. So by comparison, $2,500 per year per high-risk child for a maximum of three years for home visitation seems to me like a bargain. In closing, I simply want to remind you that while preventing violence is an important goal to achieve by investing in our babies and young children, it's not the only thing we'll accomplish by so doing. Violence is only the most difficult to ignore symptom of something deeper that's amiss in our communities, a loss in connecting, a loss in relating. In 1962, Rachel Carson published her book, The Silent Spring, which brought before all of us the possibility of a spring without songbirds. Carson showed us an unseen and insidious threat to the entire chain of life from pesticides that were being silently introduced to the front end of the food chain. A spring without songbirds was a chilling image, and in contemplating that, we began to realize the intricate linkages that exist between the front end and the outcomes when poisons are introduced to the front end of the ecosystem. Now, more than 35 years later, however, we have yet to recognize that a very similar dynamic is at work in the human system. Toxic experiences, family violence, child abuse, lack of adequate physical and emotional care, are being absorbed along with toxic substances by our babies in record numbers. As a result of cumulative degradation to the front end of life, we face a threat to community that's potentially as lethal as that of DDT. The quality of our communities is directly related to 
each of our abilities to connect, to empathize with other people, to problem solve. Indeed, the future of the most serious issues we face as a species, whether we're talking about war or hunger or racism, are predicated on having a critical mass of people who have these skills. And each of these abilities are rooted in early emotional development. By failing to recognize the cumulative effects of abuse and neglect, especially the emotional neglect of our babies across class and ethnic lines, we're inadvertently participating in our own destruction. The problems we face do not emerge from a developmental void. To create a safety net around earliest development is certainly challenging, but to me this task is far less daunting than our current reliance on swelling rates of incarceration. It is the sweetness and the vulnerability, the curiosity and the playfulness, the hopefulness, the innocence, the trust, the arms outstretched purely to embrace or to help that are at stake in our times. We are facing not only the possibility of a spring without songbirds, but a future without people who care or who will notice the difference. It is your voice, it is your vote here in Minnesota that will turn the tide in the new millennium. Thank you very much for inviting me. You, uh, at the end of uh, your remarks, you addressed the question of cost. Um, you're, uh, you're, you've developed a prescription for proceeding in a different way than the current corrections uh, response, the court and corrections response. Uh, say some more about the cost of, uh, the comparative cost of, of uh, addressing this question in a different way. David, there have been a couple of publications that people should probably know about that really can do this very thoroughly. The Rand Corporation, to whom I referred in the course of my talk, uh, was a, a corporation that, that was hired by the state of California to help them deal with the fact that they were spending so much on incarceration on the adult criminal justice system and it was actually getting ahead of their budget for higher education. So they asked Rand to look at everything that we did uh, to deal with the problem of crime in our country. And they looked at everything from midnight basketball to, you know, to adult and preteen programs uh, to prevent recidivism down to uh, baby programs. And they came down very firmly on the side of the two types of programs that I talked about because of two reasons. One is that they're cost effective. The other one is that they've been around. We have some actual data from programs now that can show us, first of all, exactly how to implement these programs and, and make them work at the community level and how to monitor them for outcomes. The, 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 high, the um, home visitation program that I talked about costs 2500 maximum 3000 for each child seen over the course of a year. Now, if we implemented universal home visitation, most children would only, if we had the school district and the health department working together on sending out a home visitor, most families would only receive one, maybe two home visits that would welcome that baby, get family started with some wonderful interactive materials reminding of the, of the importance of emotional uh, development and their role in that, and then saying goodbye. But for those who are teen parents or who are drug abusing or where there's violence in that home, 
we can provide ongoing opportunities to mentor these families, to support them, to refer problems early. And there's no question but that the cost savings are, you know, 10 or 15 times what we're currently doing. The second uh, item that you talked about was developmental child care. And I'm assuming from that that your assumption is that all child care at the current, at the present time, is not developmental. Well, the Family Work Institute, many of you will be aware of this, Family Work Institute out of New York, Ellen Galinsky and her group, did a nationwide study of child care, a uh, five university-based study four years ago, looking at the quality of care for all children. And what they found was that less than 8.5% of the child care in our nation was considered developmentally appropriate care for infants and toddlers. So one has to ask oneself what's going on with the other 91.5%. Um, I think we've got a pretty serious problem with regard to the availability and the quality, both, of adequate child care. We just haven't caught up with the changes in society. I also, by the way, am a real strong advocate of encouraging parents to stay home with their own children if they want to and if they're able to, to provide tax incentives or subsidies for parents to do that as they do in several European countries. A question from the audience. Can you comment on the resiliency of abused infants and toddlers specifically regarding considerations for adoptive parents? A wonderful question. Um, and I'm really glad that you asked that question because the reality is that how any one child survives this uh, early episode of, of abuse or neglect depends on several qualities of resiliency vis-a-vis -vis the risk factors, I mean the length and the intensity of the problem vis-a-vis -vis, uh, resiliency factors in that child. Resiliency uh, includes how the gender of the child. Girls tend to do better than boys. It includes intelligence. Children of higher intelligence tend to do better than those of lower intelligence. It includes personality. Children with a temperament that's flexible and personable tend to do pleasing with other people, good at hooking up with other people, tend to do better than children who are introverted and uh, less flexible and more sullen. Um, another resiliency factor is, was there ever one person in that child's life, though they may have been abused or neglected, was there one person available to them? Maybe it was a neighbor or a janitor or a school bus driver or a grandparent who saw them as valuable and important to them. All of those resiliency factors, vis-a-vis -vis risk factors, need to be looked at together. And, and even after we've done that, I have one adopted, one of my children, I have three biological children, one adopted, two foster, and four stepchildren. I now have my first grandchild as well. So, Sounds like all your casework can be done at right, home. That's right, I could do it at home. But, but the reality is that even if we take, even if we balance this thinking between risk factors and resiliency factors, you know, the human spirit has a way of, of exceeding all of that. And I, um, I certainly would be willing to talk to anyone separately about a given child, but I think that we have to look at a fairly complex and relatively unpredictable formula here, equation. Related to that question, can you comment on the need for mental health services for parents and the role of providing this as part of your Cadillac of services for young children? 
Absolutely. The, the two programs that I talked about, home visitation and high quality developmentally appropriate childcare, both would, would be strong referral points for mental health services, drug treatment services, um, and other supportive services, perhaps intensive educational services for parents who are falling under those kinds of problems. The, we know that, that children of mentally ill parents uh, are clearly at risk. And so the unit of treatment or the focus of treatment is not usually the child. The focus of treatment is the parents. So if we have home health visitation to go in in a supportive way, in, in much, I mean, it used to be in England, whether you were Princess Diana or the chambermaid, if you had a baby, you got a, a, a knock at the door from a home health visitor in that first week who was there to support you in answering questions and help you get launched with this new little person. The opportunity then exists for her, it's typically a she, who is making this home visit, to provide a referral early for uh, mental health services, which are absolutely crucial as part of this Cadillac model uh, if, we're going to, if we're going to move in and support prevention. What are uh, effective interventions for working with these children after age six or so if the damage is already set? That's as varied as the child. It's as varied as what happened, when, and the personality of the child. There is no, I, I, I can't tell you one universal program that works for children who have been hurt and who are now six, seven, eight years old. There is one approach that I w will share with you and you may already know about. It's called First Steps. First Steps is a program that was developed out of the work of a man named Gerald Patterson, who also happens to be an Oregonian. Um, he's a behaviorist and he's now in his 70s. He's been around a long time, but he developed what is called the Oregon Social Learning Center. And an offshoot of his work has been this program. The program focuses on identifying through an, a little assessment tool in preschool or kindergarten or first grade those children who are bullying, who are biting, kicking, hurting other children. And what it does is it offers training, intensive training in a reward system and a consequencing system for, these, for the parents of these children and also for the classroom teacher so that the child is in an integrated milieu at both school and at home that really moves in an intensive way to change this behavior. And First Steps has seen huge, um, huge success in changing this very aggressive behavior in those years before the age of eight. The, uh, the questioner says, uh, the Packard Foundation Center for Children recently called into question the effectiveness of home visiting. Would you comment on that? And then the second part of the same question, would you make home visiting universal or would it be targeted to at-risk families? You guys ask great questions. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right about the Packard report. Uh, the home visitation program, however, that they found the most important uh, and the most uh, effective was David Ohl's nurse home visitation out of the Kemp Center in Colorado. Uh, that program emerges over and over again from the research base as the Cadillac program. Um, the, 
the other programs, including Healthy Start, which is called Healthy Families in many communities, Parents as Teachers, Early Head Start, have all simply been around less long for, for a shorter period of time and haven't submitted themselves to the very uh, specific and rigorous kind of study that, ha that the old OLDS program has. The OLDS program is expensive. It's based on nurse home visitation, not visitation by paraprofessionals, as some of the others uh, rely upon. I would absolutely refer anyone who is dismayed by the fact Packard report to read the Journal of the American Medical Association, November 98, which will give you some very strong data on the OLDS program and, in my mind, an amazing case for why we need to do this. I would absolutely make it universal. I think as long as we target programs in the beginning, that they're going to be stigmatizing. And I think as long, I mean, right now, parent training is stigmatizing all across our country. We kind of expect that people are going to know how to do this. So it's very important, I think, to make it universal and then to gradually move toward providing ongoing services for those families who need it most or request it. This is the, uh, the final question. Uh, are you, uh, maybe this uh, was answered in your last, in the, the final couple of minutes of your regular comments, but are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future in solving the problem of violence among children? And if you are optimistic, what are some of the hopeful signs? It goes back to our conversation this morning. David and I talked about this before I started. I am optimistic. The reason I'm optimistic is that, first of all, for the, for the first time in our history, we have the scientific data to show the evolution of this problem. Heretofore, we really haven't known where to place our emphasis. I mean, is it not a whole lot more optimistic to think about launching healthy babies than it is to continue to incarcerate at our present rate? To me, we have for the first time the opportunity in terms of the science and the data on programs to begin to make a real difference in this problem. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. The second reason that I'm very optimistic is that I'm working with legislators all across the country. In October alone, I did 18 keynote addresses. So uh, people are hearing this information. Certainly there are, are people who will be skeptical, but I think that the great majority of people have known this for a long time, and now the science simply comes along and buttresses what we've known in our hearts. So. Yes, I'm very optimistic. Robin, thank you very much for being with us thank today. Thank you. The, uh, the next Westminster Town Hall Forum will be held in the spring of 2000. The forum will be celebrating 20 years of providing interesting, thoughtful, and creative speakers to our community. So I hope you will join us as we continue the tradition. I also would like to take this uh, opportunity to introduce the new minister at uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church, uh, Tim Hart Anderson, and uh, his uh, wife, um, Beth Hart Anderson. And Reverend Anderson is the real moderator of the town hall forum and will begin in the spring. Thank you all for being with us today. <laughs>